Happy New Year. You're listening to What's Important to You, a podcast created by the Montgomery Hospice and Prince George's Hospice Center for Learning that's designed to give intriguing insight on palliative and hospice care. In each episode, we try to shed light and uncover new perspectives on often overlooked end-of-life topics. I'm your host, Beza Gabrihana. In today's episode, we will be covering the fundamentals of hospice. So, what comes to your mind when you hear the word hospice? Do you immediately conjure up a place where people with serious illness go when they're nearing death? Well, if so, number one, you're not alone. Number two, you'd be surprised to know hospice is actually not a place. It's rather a philosophy of care that focuses on providing pain management and comfort care to patients and families that have been affected by serious illness. So today, we're actually doing something a little different and sharing an interview that was aired on DMV Spotlight ESPN 630, which is a radio station that shines light on local stories in the DMV area. DMV Spotlight recently invited two of our own staff members, Dr. Jeff Coleman, who's our Chief Medical Officer, and Monica Escalante, who's our Chief Financial Officer, to discuss hospice care. In this interview, you'll hear Dr. Coleman and Monica not only expertly define hospice in layman's term, but also discuss the plethora of services offered by Montgomery Hospice and Prince George's Hospice. I think you're really going to enjoy this conversation. So without further ado, here's the interview. Welcome to DMV Spotlight on ESPN 630, the sports capital, where we shine a light on local stories from the District, Maryland, and Virginia to inform, enlighten, and inspire you. I'm Barbara Britt. What do you think of when you hear the word hospice? Do you think of dying and death? Do you think of comfort and hope? My guests this morning are with Montgomery Hospice. They've been serving our community for a very long time and especially at a critical time of life. My guests are Dr. Jeff Coleman. He is the medical director of Hospice, Montgomery Hospice. Dr. Jeff Coleman, he's the medical director of Montgomery Hospice. And Monica Escalante, she is the chief financial officer and chief communications officer with Montgomery Hospice. And I want to thank you both so much for joining me this morning on DMV Spotlight. Thank you so much. Thank you for inviting us. Thank you, Barbara. So when most people come into connection with Montgomery Hospice, they're at a very difficult time. Uh, their most difficult time for the for the patient uh for the family the doctor comes in and says there's nothing more we can do um it's time to call hospice what how do you how do people first find you and connect walk us through that process of when they first reach out to you or they get connected to you through their provider I'm not sure of the percentages yet, but many of our referrals come directly from the hospital uh, where people have, are critically ill and they don't seem to be improving and then patients and their families decide that they want to go home and get care and we try to provide that for them. Uh, the issue of not 
anything else that we can do, we try to avoid that, and we try to encourage doctors not to say that because there is something else you can do, which is end of life or hospice care or palliative care, depending on how, what you want to call it. It's just kind of a switching of 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 parameters of what what your goals are uh, from curative. Uh, to more comfort than anything else. And tell us about some of these services, Monica, that that Montgomery Hospice <coughs> does provide at this very difficult time. So the doctor would refer the patient to you all, and then what happens when they get in contact with you? Right. As Jeff said, many of our referrals come from hospitals, from patients that have been in and out of the hospital. But a third of our referrals also come from doctor's offices, and they see that the patient is declining, and then they call us and they say, it's time for you to go and have a meeting with them. And it's more about can they benefit from the services that we provide? And a lot of times they do. One thing that most people don't know about what we do is that any given year, over 200 patients are discharged from our uh, program um, because of the good care. So the caregivers have so much support that their patients are no longer on a downward trend, but they sort of plateau. And then no one, not one person has said, I signed up for hospice too early. In fact, these 200 families that get discharged from our program are not really happy with that. And we wish we could keep them in the program, but Medicare doesn't support the, the plateau stage. So why do they lo like our program so much? Because our doctors go into patients' homes to visit them. They visit our doctors and nurse practitioners do home visits, which is a wonderful Thing and that very I don't rare. Think. Exactly. Our nurses monitor their care weekly or biweekly as needed. We have nurses assistants that are providing the personal care as often as needed. We have social workers that are connecting the family with all the services they need, but I, they are also working on the relationships among family members, which sometimes are stressful to the patient and to the family. So let me interrupt for just one mm -hmm. second and, and talk about that, those conversations that you begin to have, because that is, there's so many emotions for so many people involved. You have the patient, you have the, the medical team from Montgomery Hospice, but then you have family members, extended family members, and they're all dealing with their own emotions with as, and I'm thankful that you pointed out not everybody who enters hospice is, is going to stay in a downward spiral. That's a very key point. That's the hope point. But for many people, it does mean end-of-life care. That's not something that I necessarily would do all that well in the United States overall. We're kind of isolated from death and dying in many mm -hmm. ways. Not you all. I think you're very intimately familiar with it. But most of us really only come into contact with it when it is somebody something at the very very end of life and it's not a normal thing of life and yet everybody does die so talk to us about how you have those conversations the emotional conversations and then the range of those emotions the most important thing about these conversations is listening more than anything else um, people want to tell their stories of how they got this way what their s symptoms are and what they need and it's the same thing with the families that's what they're struggling with uh, they don't always want to be talked to uh, one of the ways they often start out these conversations really is to have them tell 
me about themselves. What did they do? What's their family like? What's their favorite thing? Uh, and then maybe then later on get into what uh, the medical problems are uh, and the goals of care. But I'd like to try to learn uh, about the person more so than the disease process than anything else. So that that's how we start to get into that. Um, some people are just forthright and they just want to get this conversation over with and that that's somewhat unusual and and I still try to back up and find out about the person. That's a, that's an amazing response. One thing that we work on is on advanced care planning. And these are com- so in that way we start thinking about how how we want to be cared for in our lives and that changes as we age so as a younger person I want certain amounts of treatments but if I'm if the disease is progressing it would be very different for me in this um, county also there's uh, people from all different countries of the world live here so each of them treats this subject in a different way so we have to be very sensitive to that so one of the things that Montgomery Hospice has done because these conversations are so difficult to have is we have a center for learning and our mission in the center for learning is to educate everyone because there's other conditions that will only affect to a portion of our population for instance Alzheimer's or or, um, heart disease it's for a group end of life is something all of us will have to deal with at some point in our lives and it's not something we learned in school or in college but so the Center for Learning offers ongoing free education to the community and to clinicians. We do face-to-face and we do webinars for those who can't come to our um, our office or whatever we're offering the programs. So we have all of these on our website, and we want to promote that because everybody's going to have to deal with these hard conversations. And in many ways, when you start thinking about them early on in your life, you prepare yourself and you prepare those around you to honor your wishes. And I want to give that website quickly. We'll give it again at the end of the program. It's www.montgomeryhospice.org. Monica, do you find that a lot of people come to this um, Center for Learning with Montgomery Hospice at that critical time, or do you find them coming earlier and younger and healthier? When we, I've been doing this for 19 years, and when we started, it was sort of forced. It was people who had a very sick family member that were coming. Now we are seeing younger people, and this year we're even, uh, our target audience is millennials. We want to talk with them early on. We're promoting a book, The Value of Wrinkles, written by uh, a staff member that we had at Montgomery Hospice. I love that book. (laughs) I love it already. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) So we have this intergenerational approach to honoring people's wishes. And we start these conversations early on because we need time to think about this. We need time to inform ourselves about the different treatments that are out there. And the pros and cons, most people don't really know that unless they are in the medical field so Um, go ahead doctor no that's that's the thing having these conversations especially when you're not stressed uh, is the best time to have them and that's why advanced care planning is important or talking about these things I encourage people to talk about uh, these kinds of issues during the holidays when all these family members are together so everybody can hear what someone's wishes are uh, when they should 
when they approach the end of life, I also tell them the end of um, death is not a disease that can be cured. It is just another part of living. You know, it's just something beyond the horizon that we can't see. And a lot of times, I mean, there are things that we can plan for and things that we simply cannot plan for. We are not in the role of God. We don't know. Tell me about the importance of having an advanced directive in addition to these conversations. Is that a legal document? Is that a medical document? There there are various forms of advanced directives or advanced care planning, I should say, uh, from what is called a most form or medical orders for life-sustaining treatment, which is a physician's order form that uh, is filled out by the doc with the family to determine what the patient specifically wants as far as certain treatments and whether or not they may want aggressive resuscitation such as CPR, ventilator, dialysis, transfusions, those sorts of things. Then there are are, uh, advanced directives, which you can get from websites of various sorts um, that may say, I only want comfort care, I don't want tube feedings, things like that. You may go through your attorney for, but although that actually isn't necessary, if you have some sort of agreement and print out one of these forms, uh, like from the state of Maryland, uh, if you have you sign it yourself with two witnesses, uh, that's good enough to give health, the health care uh, people that are taking care of you advice on what to do. So it takes the burden off the family uh, to figure out what you want when you get really sick and you're not able to speak for yourself because it is just so distressing uh, for them. That way they will at least know. And so it's like a gift to them. It really is. And tell us a little bit, either one of you, about what really what comfort care is, because I think at the heart of of Montgomery Hospice, this is really what we're talking about, is how to make these days the time that you have as comfortable as possible. That's what we all want for ourselves, and we certainly want that for our loved ones. Yeah, comfort care. Um, Generally, palliative care, which is hospice is just a part of palliative care. Hospice specifically is a medical benefit dealing with uh, a person that is ill that has approximately six months or less to live. Uh, palliative care is essentially is the treatment and relief of suffering. Uh, and suffering can be uh, a variety of things. It's not only pain, but it might be uh, physical pain, but it may be emotional pain, spiritual pain, uh, psychological pain, uh, all these sorts of things too. And so what we can do, what we can bring to that is is perhaps it may be medication, but it, perhaps it may be counseling, perhaps it may be uh, various therapies that we can provide in the home, such as Reiki, massage, um, what, I, I, pet therapy. Yeah, pet we therapy. Have, we also have music uh, a, therapists. Aromatherapy. Mm-hmm. These are sorts of things because... Je- Oddly enough, uh, as Monica was saying, um, about one out of six patients uh, really is a graduate from hospice and we uh, have to discharge them from our care. And a lot of it has to do with maybe just adjusting their medication some, paying attention to them, uh, just doing little things. I think sometimes people just need a little bit of tender loving care and that just helps them make them much more comfortable takes away the stress and so they end up 
they're not getting better necessarily, but at least they've kind of stabilized and they tend to live longer. And a lot, go ahead, I'm sorry, Monica. There's research that talks about that, that patients who sign up for hospice in an earlier stage, they tend to live longer. But most people don't know that. And I think the things that you mentioned, the aromatherapy, the pet mm-hmm. care, the massage, the, the Reiki, all of those things, those are things that everyone, even if you're in, quote, good shape, can benefit from and help you mm-hmm. feel better. Mm-hmm. Exactly. We have a music therapist, for instance, that goes into the family's home and creates music with the family. Or, for instance, if the family is far away, they create a song together that they can then record the audio and send on, uh, on text to a friend or to a family member, and that brings them together and leaves a memory to hold on to. So we also have a pediatric program and we we do a lot of these complementary therapies with the families as a whole um, for that. So we have a reverie harp that goes into homes and a threshold choir that this Mm -hmm. comes to the home and sings whatever songs are important for the family. Um, And it's magical, really. And during the holidays, we did a lot of that with patients and they really loved it because they cannot longer leave their house. That is so beautiful. I'm speaking today with Dr. Jeff Coleman and Monica Escalante with Montgomery Hospice. Dr. Coleman is the medical director and Monica Escalante is the chief financial officer and the chief communications officer. We have so many topics to cover. I I do want to focus for just a moment though on how, how it gets paid for and what does not get paid for, which I think is kind of startling. Right. uh, Most of the care is paid by Medicare, Medicaid, or commercial insurances. Uh, But there's a good portion of patients that are underinsured. So some some of the policies that we have seen have a maximum of $5,000 for end-of-life care. $5,000 doesn't really go very far. Not Montgomery County. Exactly. So I encourage the listeners to look into their own policies to see what's the coverage that they have for end-of-life, just out of curiosity. And you'll be surprised. And this is something that you may want to bring to the attention to the HR office um, because we've seen a lot of that. For those cases, we don't want to burden the families. If the families cannot afford the care, all they need to do is to write down on the um, co-payment invoice that they cannot pay for it, and we, we turn it into charity care uh, because it's a very difficult time for the families. Very difficult. Go we, ahead. We don't turn anyone away because of the ability to pay. That's very important for people, just to remove that burden. And so, and we try to provide the same services across the board, whether it's uh, durable medical equipment like hospital beds or medication, um, sometimes uh, nebulizer machines, all those kinds of things, are, they still get the same level of care, the number, same number of nursing visits, physicians, whatever it may be. Um, but, uh, some policies don't cover it all and so we try to stretch what we get through donations and other ways you know of being financially fiscally Mm -hmm. responsible we also have the only inpatient unit 
dedicated. It's a clinic with 14 beds for end of life, which is uh, very well known in this county. It's called Casey House. And people who have had their loved one at the house are actually our largest base of donors. And sometimes we look at the amount of time their loved one has been at the house, and it's usually one or two days or three days, very short stays. But these people continue to donate to us for a very long time. And it's in gratitude of that outstanding care they receive at, uh, at Casey House and also in the homes. But Casey House loses $1.4 million a year. And that's because we have it staff at high levels and we don't cut short on all the latest therapies that are out there for patients. Very aggressive in pain management as well as in complementary therapy. So we, we, if people are um, interested in donating to us, they can come to our website and we would welcome that. The uncompensated care that we provide is all in also includes bereavement services. We follow the families, we help them cel celebrate all those difficult holidays uh, with a phone call and these are all master's level counselors that are calling every member of the family and we define family as however the family wants to define that. A lot of times we have very close friends that are family and we would call call those um, family members as well. So or the one caregivers, too, exactly. sometimes. Mm -hmm. yeah. That's very true. I have been at funerals mm -hmm. where the caregiver who's been with the, uh, somebody for months or years or even just a short time, but there's been a bond of the heart, and they're mm -hmm. grieving right alongside um, because they know the investment there. And I want to ask you, because um, even though we are in the start of the new year, I know that one of your big fundraisers comes in, in the holiday time with the Tree of Lights at Brookside Gardens, which is so beautiful. Anyway, such a peaceful place. And talk to us about about that time. Well, in, in November, we invite the families of the people that we've cared, and we have families that have been coming for a decade and sometimes even longer, and they come back and they tell us where they are now. A lot of our staff attends that event and they can share memories with, with uh, uh, the people that we cared for. At the, what we also have seen is sometimes we've taken care of one of the parents first and then the, the, the other parent comes. So there's these um, they are sort of our extended family in the county, and we have a chance to see them. They can uh, buy a light that we, then we light for all these loved ones, and it's there's uh, beautiful rituals that we do that night with families that bring all of us together and, and celebrate the lives of our loved ones. That is so beautiful, and I wanted to ask you, because you brought up a good point, people who are involved in hospice care is a little bit different from what we consider normal doctoring or medical care where you expect you fully expect your patient to get better most of the time I'm not a doctor at all but I would expect that that's the anticipation um, so is it difficult for the staff is it difficult for you all to be involved every day with people who are dying is that a difficult thing personally um, personally, uh, this is the best job I've ever had, really. Um, people are usually very grateful for what we provide. And so you get a lot of positive feedback, and I think our staff does too. We have an extraordinary uh, retention rate for employees. A lot of folks um, stay with us for years and years, um, pr probably until some of them may need hospice care. And uh, so I, th I think it's an amazing thing uh, that that if you are in this work, generally, you love it, and this is what you want to do. 
And but also as a company, we take care of our employees. So for instance, we have different teams that come to provide care after hours. The same nurse that is providing coverage during the day is not going to be asked to take a night shift or a weekend shift. We have different teams for that. And we make sure all of them are well staffed and well supported. Uh, we also have a wellness program uh, within our company. And just by definition, the type of people that come to do this work are so generous that I see as, as someone on the on the administrative side, we have to uh, make sure they are um, taking good care of themselves. For instance, we had a situation when some families needed certain supplies and we found out that the staff was um, taking out of their own pocket money to provide for these families. So we instituted a fund, which is a... Um, a fund that is available for families that have certain needs, and all of that is funded by our own staff. But we've we've taken care of the fact that somebody somebody is is putting too much of their own resources towards some family. We have a fund and we have a process, and now we do it more. And it's it's a fund that never need never lacking resources because all of us donate. What to that a fund. generous generous spirit is there and I, Dr. Coleman I want to circle back to what you had said earlier that really you're dedicated to relieving suffering and that mm -hmm. is something I see not just for the patient but also for the extended family as well absolutely I mean they often have a lot of emotional suffering and difficulties I, I often have talks with the caregivers especially if they're older uh, that they remember to take care of themselves. Don't ignore symptoms. Make sure you keep your doctor's appointment. If you're in the hospital, don't eat out of the vending machine. Those <laughs> sorts of things. Make sure you get enough sleep at night. Uh, those sorts of things to help them take care of themselves, too, because we always hear these stories that one partner will die and then the other soon thereafter. And there's, there is good reason and there's good research that says there is some truth to that. But, and part of it is because the caregivers uh, don't take care of themselves. And so that's one of the things our staff tries to provide for them is to teach them uh, how to take care of themselves, to give them some relief uh, in, those, in that respect, and then to help them with uh, grief after their loved one dies. Because you're already so depleted. It always makes me think of when you're on an airplane and they say, there's the oxygen mask, make sure you get your oxygen first yes. before you try to help somebody else. Otherwise, neither one of mm -hmm. you is gonna make it. That's very, very difficult. I wanna ask you because you provide so many different support groups. Um, and of course, the one that always takes your breath away, the loss of a child. Talk to us about that very unique journey. Um, we have what's called the uh, Montgomery Kids Team, or M-Kids, and it is a very unique team. Uh, we have uh, professionals dedicated to that skill in particular uh, because it is a different animal uh, dealing with people that really still want curative treatment for their kids of course and do. so you know and and we all get that some of us have children at that age and so we try to take care of care of them and guide them through the process oftentimes they're continuing on whether it's chemotherapies or surgeries or other various things but we try to support them through that 
And I wanted to ask you as well, and I was a little bit surprised when I, there's so much information on the website, by the way, it just a wealth of information and resources. If you're at that stage in your life or you or you know of someone or you love someone who needs the, or you need the resources, go to www.montgomeryhospice.org. So many resources there. Little bit surprised, and I shouldn't have been, to see that there's a support group for people who've lost people due to opioids. Such a new, you know, quote-unquote, well, I guess it's not that new now, but... Um, that you are offering this specifically for people who have lost ones to opioid abuse? We try to offer uh, bereavement services, grief, grieving services to anyone that comes to us in the county. And that tended to be, that's been a new thing, uh, a, a new problem that has come up. And so we will try to provide uh, a group for opioid people that have uh, suffered losses because of opioid abuse. Uh, it's the same thing if there's like such as a shooting or a fire and someone dies. So, but that is a specific group, and so we try to make different things available for different people in stages in their life. That is amazing, and I, I we just can't run out of time until we talk about your volunteers, Monica. I know that you have a training coming up in March, starting on the 13th on three consecutive Fridays, but your volunteers have got to be very special people. They are. They are. We have over 300 volunteers, um, yes, and we keep them busy. They see about 2,000 patients a year, and uh, the three-day training is very thorough. And uh, we think that, as I said before, everybody needs this kind of inform information. So uh, a lot of our volunteers have been caregivers at some point or um, have lost a loved one under our care or are just preparing to deal with uh, things that are coming up their way. There was a, a time when we had a, a lot of baby boomers coming and I think that's the case still but now we're seeing younger people and the new profile of volunteer that we are very happy to have are medical school students um, so it's it's a wonderful thing for them to do and uh, we we think they are going to be different doctors mm -hmm. because they've had they would have had this kind of experience so we're very supportive of that now the training in we do a training in the summer for for um, the medical school students that are uh, most of them volunteer during the summer and then they go back into their school but that's another thing to keep in mind that training in March um, is available mostly we are in need of uh, volunteers who can sit with a patient, who can give the caregiver a break. Um, and those volunteers are going to be trained in modalities of massage, comfort touch. Uh, They're going to understand our aromatherapy program so they can use those different blends for different situations. Uh, and, and the most important of all, they're going to understand the end-of-life process as a whole and all the resources that are available to them and to other people in the community. So we encourage them to sign up for that. And you're nodding your head in our last moment about how important that is for doctors to have that training oh no one ever taught me about dying in medical school no one ever talked about it because the emphasis is always on cure uh, and so but this is such a big part you know for people to see in this society it's not uh, common for people to pass away at home 
And so, and especially for physicians, they need to become more comfortable with it. I want to thank you both so much for joining me. I know we could have so much more to talk about. such a critical issue. But again, we are talking about Montgomery Hospice, www.montgomeryhospice.org. I've been speaking today with Dr. Jeff Coleman, the medical director of Montgomery Hospice, and Ms. Monica Escalante. She's the chief financial officer and chief communications officer. I just want to thank you both so much for joining me today. Thank you. Thank you so much for having us. Thank you. I'm Barbara Britt on ESPN 630. Thank you so much for listening to this interview. I hope you enjoyed this episode. We want to thank DMV Spotlight for covering this important topic and for inviting us to share our knowledge and expertise with the community. If you're interested in learning more about our organization, please visit www.montgomeryhospice.org. We have many resources, including information in various languages there for you. You could also see our upcoming educational programs by visiting our events page. This podcast is created and produced by the Montgomery Hospice and Prince George's Hospice Center for Learning. You can listen to any of our previous episodes on Spotify, iTunes, Stitchers, or wherever you get your podcast. Thank you so much for tuning in, and you've been listening to What's Important to You.